Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 together today. Our title this morning is A Call to Live Differently. How many of you believe that the life of a Christian should look different than the life of an unbeliever? All of us believe that, don't we? Um, Our speech should be different. Our stewardship should be different. Our marriages should be different. Our parenting should be different. Our managing should be different. Our businesses should be run differently. Our work ethic should be different. Our water cooler conversations should be different as well. For many months, we have been walking through the book of Hebrews. And what we have looked at is much theology and much doctrine. As the writer brings Hebrews to a close, he is going to provide us with a great deal of application that we're going to look at over the next several weeks together. Um, This application really is about you and I learning to put our faith to work. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Beginning verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for therefore some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Notice our message point this morning is this. Being a Christian means demonstrating basic Christian work. Chapter 13, again, really is about you and I putting our faith to work. The Lord empowered James to write in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How can you and I put our faith to work? Well, notice what the writer tells us. The first thing is we We demonstrate faith in action by showing brotherly love to others. So point number one is a call for love. Verse one says, let brotherly love continue. There are four main words for love that we find in Greek. The first one that we know is agape love. This is God's unconditional love for us. This is the truest and purest form of love. There is also eros love. This is romantic love. The next word is a word that many of us may not be familiar with. It is storage love. Okay, This is the kind of, of, of love that is demonstrated within the family unit. This is family love. It would be the unconditional love that you have for one another and especially for your children. I know that when Connor and Caitlin were born, the moment I laid eyes on them, man, literally, they had me wrapped around their little finger. Can you relate to that? 
Man, it, there, it, when they were born, there was something that just kind of started in me that, man, it, it just demonstrated that unconditional love. I developed for them. There was also, there's a sacrificial love that I have for them. There is a protective love that I have for them. If you mess with my kids, you're going to have to mess with me, right? It doesn't matter how young they are or how old they are. We are always going to be protective of our kids. That is storage love. Most of us may not be familiar with that word. Then there is philea love. This is what we would call friendship love. The city of Philadelphia is called the city of what? Brotherly love, isn't it? That is the kind of love that our writer is speaking to this morning. He is calling the Hebrew church and our church to have a brotherly love for one another. Having love for others is one of the clearest and truest marks of a believer. If you don't love your brother, if you don't love your sister in Christ, there is something wrong with you, isn't there? There's something wrong with us if we don't demonstrate love for one another. John wrote in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's Word is very much a love story, isn't it? It's a story of God constantly pursuing after us, his creation. It's a story of Jesus living, leaving heaven and coming and dwelling amongst us and living a perfect life and dying for us and providing a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father. If that is not the greatest demonstration of love, um, then, then there is no um, better, we know there's no better demonstration of love. Romans 5, 8, Jesus said, are we reading, um, Paul wrote, God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest and purest form of love is what Jesus Christ has shown us. May it be said of this church that we love God, that we love one another, and that we love and are pursuing after lost people. May it be said of us that we live up to the name on our sign more so than the address of our church. We know that our name is Friendship Baptist Church, and if you don't know this, our address is 270 Country Club. May this place never look like a country club, but always as a place where brotherly and sisterly love is on full display. Next, we, we, we put our faith to work by showing hospitality to others. In verse 2 we read, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Our love should not just be on display inside of this room, inside of this church house, but it should also be on display outside of this door, outside of these doors as well, right? Think about um, a first century inn, okay? It was very much different than a Holiday Inn or the Ritz-Carlton. An inn back in the first century, according to historians, would be very dirty, it would have been very unsanitary, and it also would have been a cesspool in many instances of, 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 um, for immorality. 
So when you think about the first century believers traveling from city to city armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when a brother or sister would come into town, the last thing that you wanted was to put them up in an inn in a place where it would be considered a cesspool of immorality, right? As believers, what should we do? We should open up our home to other believers so that they are protected from that cesspool of immorality. And we see over and over in Scripture of, of, of the early believers showing hospitality to others. In Acts chapter 10, we read of Peter staying at the home of, of, of Simon the Tanner. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companions, after um, Lydia in her household came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and after they were baptized, Lydia opened up her home to Paul and his companions. As believers, being hospitable should be part of our DNA. Some of you in this room are, have the gift of hospitality. Man, you are phenomenal in this area. You open up your home both to believers and unbelievers. You show hospitality by the way that you care for one another, those inside this church as well as those outside this church. Let us all demonstrate the love of Christ by showing hospitality to others. The author continues here and says, For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Stephen Cole quote, quote, quotes from John MacArthur here. He says, here the author is referring to the stories of Abraham and Lot back in Genesis 18 and 19. These men welcomed strangers and treated them as family, not knowing at first that two of them were angels and the other one was Jesus in incarnate form. The author's point is not that we should be hospitable to strangers in hopes of meeting an angel. Rather, he is saying that we often do not know how important or far-reaching a simple act of, of helpfulness may be. And as Jesus said, when we minister to the needy, we are actually ministering to Christ himself. You and I never know who is going to walk in the doors of this church. We never know the condition of their hearts. We never know the, 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 the family that they are coming from. We don't know if they're coming here with great baggage. We don't know, man, if they're the greatest saint that's ever walked the face of this earth. We do not know. But when they walk through the doors of the church, what do we need to show towards them? Hospitality. Welcome them with open arms and greet them um, and, and tell them how much we appreciate them being here. What we know is that we have been called to be loving people. We have been called to be hospitable people. And notice next, we have been called to be compassionate people. So we see a call for compassion with point number three. We read, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. How many of you have ever been part of a prison ministry? Raise your hand. Anybody in here ever gone to, to, to a prison to do prison work? Um, at my last church, there was a man in the church by the name of Al Gibbons, and he had a prison ministry called prison, um, pr um, Cornerstone Prison Ministry. And one of the biggest seasons of his ministry occurred around Christmas. He would go to literally um, dozens of prisons carrying with him what he called blessing bags. Every one of these blessings bags um, were white bags that had been colored by a child or an adult. And they would be um, just filled with 
I love you's and God loves you and, and just scripture after scripture would be on those. They'd be really, really bright and colorful and encouraging. And every single one of those bags would be filled with a bar of soap, some toothpaste and a toothbrush. There would be shampoo, candy, fruit, and most importantly, there would be a gospel track and or a Bible that would be put into every one of those bags. And what Al did was he invited people both from our church and surrounding churches, and we would go into those prisons, and we would walk from cell to cell, or if it was kind of an open communal communal room, we would just pass out to um, those that would be in there. And we would pass those bags out. And we would tell that person that received them, God loves you and we love you. We'd pass that bag out to them. And if God gave us the opportunity to share the good news of salvation with them, we would. There's no telling how many thousands of prisoners came to know Jesus Christ as a result of that man's ministry. And, 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 and Cornerstone Prison Ministry, obviously, is not the only prison ministry out there. Many of you are familiar with, with Bill Glass Prison Ministry, and some of you have partnered with him, either going into prison or financially partnered. Chuck Colson Prison Ministry and many others. You and I are certainly called to reach those within our prison system with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more beautiful than seeing a hardened criminal weep in recognition of their sin and God's glorious grace. But that, that's not who the writer of Hebrews is referring to here. He is not speaking of the hardened criminal in prison. He is speaking of fellow believers that have been put into prison as a result of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and we don't know how many hundreds of people were in prison when the writer wrote this passage of Scripture, um, but we know that there was probably many. And, and what the writer is saying here is that we need to help those in prison. In fact, the term, as though in prison with them, literally expresses that we are prisoners together with them. Okay, Now, um, those that made up this Hebrew church, um, some of them may have already spent time in prison because of their faith. Many of them probably knew that a day was coming when they would be put in to prison. And so what the writer is telling these believers, as well as us in this room, is that when we know that a brother or sister is in prison unjustly, we need to reach out to them. We need to help them. I mean, think about Paul. I mean, Paul wrote many of his epistles from prison. And one thing that he always did was he thanked those who came to him to encourage him, to to fellowship with them, and to gift him when gifts were necessary. And so we need to reach out to those um, that, that are in the prisons unjustly. Okay, now in America, um, very seldom do we hear of a believer being put in prison unjustly. Okay, but we know that it has happened, and what we know with, that, with absolute certainty is that it is going to happen again. And so we need to be prepared to reach out to them. We know that in many parts of this world that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are in prison unjustly. We need to pray for them. And we need to do um, 
Man, if God provides a way for us to support them financially um, or missionaries on the ground financially who need to go and help them, then we need to do that as well. Let us not forget our fellow believers during their time of need. Okay, that goes for those that may be in prison or those that may be going through a loss or going through a, 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 a hurt or struggling um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, or even financially. The next way we demonstrate um, faith in action is there is a call here for purity. In verse 4 we read, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, marriage, there is no more important institution established by God than marriage. It is the greatest picture we are given to explain the relationship that Christ has with his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is the bridegroom. You and I are the bride of Christ. We are to be holy, we are to be faithful, we are to be pure, and we need to be without blemish as well. David um, Dykes points out, marriage is in trouble in America. We have one of the highest divorce rates in all of the world. More and more couples are living together without getting married. A few years ago, our Supreme Court redefines God, redefined God's definition of marriage. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should honor God's plan for marriage. The very first relationship God established was that of marriage. He looked down in the Garden of Eden and saw that man was alone, and God said that it is not good for man to be alone. Have you heard the story um, of the conversation that God had with Adam before um, Eve was born? You probably haven't, but let me share it with you. Um, God appeared to Adam and said, I've got a surprise for you. I'm going to create a woman for you. She is going to be perfect in every way. She is always going to agree with you. She will be beautiful. She will always be asking you how she can best serve you, and she will never complain about anything. How does that sound? Adam said, it sounds too good to be true. And then Adam asked God, what is it going to cost me? And the Lord said, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam thought for a minute and said, what can I get for a rib? I know that's bad, um, but I wanted you to laugh a little bit this morning. God created marriage. He created woman because he knew that it was not good for us men to be alone. Understand, even though our society has changed this definition of marriage, even, so, even though the Supreme Court has redefined what God has clearly defined, make no mistake, the Lord's definition has not changed and will not change. Not only will his definition of marriage not change, the sacredness of the union will not change either. 
as believers, you and I need to show those outside of the doors of this church as well as those inside the doors of this church what a biblical, godly marriage looks like. We do that by remaining faithful and true to our spouse. We read in verse 4 again, Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What does that mean? It means that sex within the confines of marriage is a good and beautiful thing, but outside of it, it is a sin. God will judge those who violate the marriage covenant, those who commit adultery and other sinful sexual sins as well. So what is the solution to this? Let me challenge all of us in this room to to remain faithful and true within the covenant of marriage. Keep the Lord first in your life, in your marriage, and within your family. Stay pure. You made a commitment when you entered into a marriage covenant with your spouse to remain faithful 100% of the time. Stay committed to one another. Marriage is hard work, isn't it? Would anybody disagree with that? It is hard. It is challenging. You know, Danny and I have been married for 24 years, and if you were to ask her, have you ever contemplated divorcing your husband? She would say no, but I've thought of strangling him a time or two. Probably for most of us men in this room, that could be said of our spouses towards us. You and I need to love one another, love our spouses, respect our spouses. We need to pray with our spouses. You know, very, I've shared this before, but very, very, very few times in the 24 years of marriage have Danny and I not prayed together as we have ended our day. That, I believe, is one of the greatest reasons for success within our marriage. We pray together every night. We pray now with Caitlin every night before she goes to bed. Growing up, we made a commitment when our kids were born, we were going to pray over them, and then we were going to pray for them. And when they got of age to pray and join us in family prayer, they would pray as well. And this is something that we have done um, for, you know, Connor now is 20 years of age. We've done it for 20 years. Let me challenge you to pray with your spouse and to pray with your kids and for both of them. There must also be grace and forgiveness. There is no perfect person, which means that when two sinful people become one flesh, there are going to be some challenges, aren't there? Is there anybody in this room that has not experienced some challenges in in life and in marriage? No, we've all had those, right? We must learn to demonstrate grace, offer up forgiveness, and learn these words. I am sorry. And men, we need to learn to say, yes, dear. That was a word that my dad always said to my mom. Yes, dear. Suppose you found yourself having committed the act of adultery or are currently engaged in an extramarital affair. What now? Stop it. Turn from your sins. Repent. Confess your sins to your spouse and confess your sins before the Lord and confess your sins to other believers. Get the help you need and pray to God for your marriage. Notice next, the final way we put our faith to work is there is a call here for simplicity. In verses 5 and 6 we read, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For 
For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Contentment. What does it mean to be content? You know, at each one of our upward um, practices, midway through our practices, we, we stop playing basketball. All of the players on the court or cheerleaders um, stop and they come together for a Bible study. We designate eight minutes of our practice for that. This week, our Bible study was on contentment. And, and, and so I had um, both the um, Chris and Cassie's team and my team together this week. And I set them together in a circle. And, and I asked them a few questions. The first question I asked them was, what does the word contentment mean? And we've got kindergarten through second graders. Not a single one of them had an idea. And then I said, think about all of the stuff in your room. From the clothes that you have to the shoes that you wear and to the toys that you play with. I want you to think and, and uh, to yourself, can you name every single one of the toys in your room and, and all of the stuff that you have? And every single one of them shook their head and said that they could not. Then I, I said to them, I said, now let me ask you this. What is something that you would like that you do not have? And as soon as I asked that question, man, their eyes just lit up because they could name, if I would have given them the opportunity to name all the things that they wanted that they don't have, man, they could have probably spent 20 minutes telling me everything that they do not have. You know, it is a lot easier for all of us to list the stuff that we don't have instead of the things that we do have, Right? We dream about things that we don't have. But you know what? That is the absolute opposite of contentment, isn't it? A person who is content chooses to focus on and be grateful for what they have rather than always thinking and dreaming about what they do not have. We live in a world that tells us that what you have defines who you are. You and I must be careful that we don't get sucked into that trap and believe that. Having money is not a problem. The problem is when that money has you, right? Notice what Paul wrote um, to young Timothy. He wrote of the dangers of money. In 1 Timothy 6, we read, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pains. And dropping down to verse 17, we read, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Folks, what God has given us, we need to use it to build up his kingdom and not our own. Our own kingdoms will pass away, won't they? Everything that we own one day will deteriorate, but the kingdom of God will go on throughout all of eternity and even beyond. I love the reminder 
that the writer provides us with. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a quote from the book of Joshua. It is a promise that the Lord Jesus Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. If we have Jesus, we have everything we need, right? It's nice to have some material things, but without Jesus, a person has nothing. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning? If you were to die today, do you know with absolute certainty where you would spend eternity? Pastor Jack Arnold shared, the promise of Christ in us is more stable than any bond or note or bank or financial organization or government. Nothing more important than Jesus. Let me ask you this as we conclude this morning. How are you loving others? How are you demonstrating brotherly and sisterly love toward others? How are you showing hospitality to others? How are you showing compassion to both believers and unbelievers? Are you remaining sexually pure and remaining faithful to your marriage vows? Are you and I living simply and learning to be content with what the Lord has blessed us with? Or are we more pursuing more and more and more stuff that's going to one day pass away? I pray all of us are pursuing after Jesus more than we're pursuing after material things. Man, let us all in this room put our faith to work. And the best way that we put our faith to work is to demonstrate the love of God to those that we do life with. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer. If there's a decision you need to make, I'm going to be standing here this morning. If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. That is to repent of your sin and come to Jesus. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you again, Father, for the opportunity to gather in your house to worship you. Father, I thank you for every man and woman and student that is in this room this morning. I thank you, Father, that for, for, for Lord, I, I know each person in here. And Father, I believe with with great certainty that every single one has confessed you to be Lord and Savior of their life. And I thank you for that. I also know, Lord, that every single one of us in this room, Father, are, are still battling this flesh. And Lord, there are times in our life that we don't love as we need to. There are times in, this, in our life that we don't show hospitality to others as we need to. There are times that we are not very compassionate towards believers nor towards unbelievers. Father, there are times, Father, that, that sexually, Lord Jesus, we are not as pure as we know that we need to be. And there are times, Father, that we live our lives with closed fists instead of open hands. So, Father, what that tells me is all of us in this room are still a work in progress. But we know in accordance to your word, Father, that we can experience victory through you in every season of our lives. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and all that we do. Help us, Father, that when we fail you, when we sin, that we turn from that sin and repent of that sin and, and, and get back in the race like we know that we need to. Father, be with us now during this time of invitation. First in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You come now if there's a decision you need to make.